Welcome to the MARC podcast series, a joint production of the Health Federation of Philadelphia and Prevention Institute. MARC stands for Mobilizing Action for Resilient Communities. Across the United States, communities are coming together to understand the impact that traumatic events in childhood can have in adulthood and to create environments where children are free from harm. During this podcast series, we'll talk with leaders from cross-sector networks in these communities that are moving this approach forward on a broad scale. I'm your host, Ruben Cantu of the National Nonprofit Prevention Institute. And my plan for this podcast series is to inspire and support collaborative community resilience efforts by problem solving with our guests about the topics that challenge them and their networks every day. And I'm Katherine Evans, the president of Rooted Strategy. My plan for these podcasts is to raise the issue of power dynamics. Power is such an important factor to consider when cross-sector networks bring together community residents with people who work in fields like education, healthcare, and city government. Today, we're joined by Laura Norton Cruz. For four years, Laura was a director of the Alaska Resilience Initiative, a statewide network with a mission to end child maltreatment, intergenerational, and systemic trauma through healing and strategic advocacy. Laura's with us today to talk about the role of a network's backbone organization, a term we're borrowing from collective impact. Laura, to start out with, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? What brought you to the work of ACEs Trauma and Resilience? Sure, Um, when I was eight years old, My mom told my sister and I about her experience having experienced sexual abuse at the hands of her father and educated us about child sexual abuse prevention, our rights to our body, consent, how to get help, that, you know, it's the role of adults to believe us. And ever since that time, I decided it was going to be my work, my life work to um, end child sexual abuse, to protect children, to make sure that children um, get to exercise their full human rights. So then I went on to, to, I moved into social work. So I did victim advocacy in a a rape crisis center and then got my uh, degree, my master's in social work, and really focused on these dynamics of domestic and sexual violence and justice, but also learned a lot about research as a tool for change. I did a bunch of community-based research. You know, I was really um, passionate about multilingual and arts-based research methods and community organizing, and then made my way into the tribal health system where I worked for over five years doing kind of trauma-informed work. And that was when I was first introduced to the ACE study. Dr. Vincent Felitti came and presented, and I remember thinking both, um, oh, well, this explains everything, and, and also like, yeah, of course, <laughs> right? So it was, it was such a wonderful thing to learn that there was this kind of data to, to back up what I had, what I had sensed about the world. Um, but I also immediately thought, okay, but how does this how does this intersect with structural oppression, right? He's talking about things that happen in families. What about the things that happen to families, right? So I was already trying to figure out how you frame ACEs and use the power of ACE science while also understanding the effect of how cities are built and how, you know, history uh, uh, marginalizes people and so on. 
you know, I, I did that work in the tribal health system. And then when the opportunity opened up to do that work uh, at the Alaska Children's Trust, directing the Alaska Resilience Initiative, I moved into that in 2016. Lastly, I'd say becoming a mother and then later being a divorced single mother of two very young children taught me a lot about how crucial it is that we support the entire family structure and what stress on caregivers means to children and just how how crucial it is that we have a multi-generational approach in all of our work. I think it really goes to show how what happens to us as children is something that stays with us and has a huge impact on us, whether it's positive or negative. Um, let's talk a little bit about networks like the Alaska Resilience Initiative. What's powerful about integrating the science around ACEs, trauma, and resilience with models of community co collaboration, such as collective impact? As an individual, or as an agency, an individual agency or business, you can do a lot with the science of ACEs, trauma and resilience. You can transform your own agency, you can offer technical assistance, training, you can work well with patients and that's really important work. Of course, using this in your own family, but through community collaboration, right? Through creating networks where you communicate and work with each other, you get to do that and you get to do so much more, right? You get to amplify each other's voices and share um, examples of what this looks like on the ground so that other people can borrow those examples and, and try them on. You know, you get to reduce duplication of efforts so that the same people aren't having to hire their own graphic designers and writers to, you know, to create separate publications, right? If you can create them together. Um, you get to put your brains together and create better ideas, language, uh, visual products, advocacy than you would without, without that collaboration. As an example, we created a training curriculum um, called History and Hope that addressed ACEs and resilience and trauma-informed environments. And I think it was as successful and as effective as it is because we had so many different viewpoints and types of knowledge um, and types of expertise doing that, which we wouldn't have had if it was just one agency owning it, but because it was a network owning it, there was that buy-in and that idea that we are creating this thing. You know, by coming together and putting your voices and perspectives together, you also get to see the gaps, right? You get to scan the landscape and really see what we have strengths in and what's missing and to assess what is needed, right? And to do that collectively so that people don't feel that their toes are being stepped on and so that they buy into that. It's also, I think, really important to just support people who feel like they're out there on their own. There's, there are people who have learned about this, you know, or have known it from their cultural traditions and feel like they're just shouting from the rooftops that developmental trauma matters and that how we raise children matters and um, that we have to look at the roots of problems. So being part of a network allows them to be brought into a space where they're not alone, right? You know, and in coming together, you can ask, well, what are we able to do together and collectively that we can't do on our own, right? How can we exert pressure on, on certain levers of change that will make a huge difference? How can we bring what each of us are doing best um, to a larger whole and, and move in one direction? I think it helps build us into a movement, a movement that can't be ignored as easily. In thinking about these kinds of networks, what kinds of changes do you feel like they can make that they can affect in our communities? Yeah, I think 
the best way to answer that is to give a few examples. Um, so with the Alaska Resilience Initiative, um, which we called ARI for short, with ARI, I think what one of the things we were able to do, and I think that other networks do, is create a space to have the challenging conversations that need to happen in the field in order to create a shared vision of what we're working towards. How do we articulate it? Are we talking about ACEs? Are we talking about broader forms of childhood and developmental trauma? Are we talking about intergenerational trauma, systemic trauma? It, you know, is the focus on resilience effective and strengths-based and inspiring, or is it fluffy and does it put too much onus on a person who's experiencing oppression to recover versus on, you know, systems to stop uh, oppressing people. In creating a network, we were able to have these really hard conversations that I think are needed to move the field forward, kind of like a think tank. One of the main changes that we, I think, achieved is by creating this think tank um, where brilliant people from very different perspectives, different sectors, different cultural groups, different tribes, were able to come together, we were able to put things to language and put things to images that shifted the dialogue. So in the, like the ACEs field in Alaska, it shifted from being a predominantly kind of white middle class demographic and set of language to be much more inclusive and, and power sharing and having more indigenous and people of color leadership and articulating a vision for what it means to be trauma-informed that included being equity-focused and that included being culturally responsive, right? That included systemic racism and intergenerational and systemic trauma as part of the articulation of, of the kind of trauma that, it, that is affecting children in development. Another thing that, you know, we were able to do to create change was uh, coming together, right? We helped push along the policy process, um, it, you know, in partnership with a lawmaker who introduced the bill, Representative Garantar, but we were able to get Alaska's legislature to pass a trauma-informed government statute that says, you know, it's the policy of the state of Alaska to take this into account. And then, you know, able to hold the government accountable to, to what does that mean in implementation? Yeah, Rock Matsu, which is one of the local or regional communities in Alaska that participated in the in the MARC grant with us, they, through their collective impact network focused on adverse childhood experiences, they trained all their schools to be trauma-informed. They um, have made a lot of structural changes in their child protection system in the region. It's a state system, but the, kind of the regional office better relationships with the child protection system to support referrals to, you know, to services. They've built up a lot of peer and community-led education on parenting and child sexual abuse and on racism. Um, and they started a safe baby court and have been able to evaluate that and really show that the safe baby court model, which is a therapeutic court model um, for children zero to three, um, or for families of children zero to three, you know, has better outcomes, saves money, et cetera. And so then the state can look at that and, and try to amplify that effort. Um, another network that was part of the Mark Communities, which is the Southern Kenai Peninsula Resilience Coalition, they have transformed the culture and practices and language and policies of their hospitals, you know, their schools, their agencies. They've also um, 
potentially influenced who has been elected to their city office, but certainly educated the, their elected officials to really reflect and believe in a trauma-informed approach. And one of the effects that has had is like leading to funding and prioritizing what it means to take care of families, including most recently with the CARES Act funds. I really appreciate what Laura is saying about what the network is able to accomplish. And I think it really reflects this idea of power being the ability to create change. And so as I, I listen to Laura talk about the, the structural changes that happen within institutions and you know new curricula and really effective advocacy work happening. And then I think about all of the sort of downstream effects that those changes will have for the people that you care about in your community. Um, I'm really reminded of sort of tangibly what power is. And it's about organized people, organized resources, and organized ideas. And to see the alignment of the three of those things with your, um, with this movement of people that, as you said, cannot be ignored with this collective of shared resources, shared money to help you as a backbone organization lift up and take your mission out into the world. And really armed with this organized idea of ACEs, trauma and resilience being the frame through which you move an equity-based agenda to create change in your community, I just see a really clear through line. And I'm, I'm not sure if you had that analysis, that power analysis, when you started this work as clearly as I see it now. When I began in 2016 at the Alaska Resilience Initiative, I mean, I certainly didn't have the articulation that you just offered, Catherine, about what are the components of power and how this works as, as power building. And I, I really appreciate the way you put that. But I did just have a sense, um, a very felt sense, in part because of when I was working in the tribal health system, I wanted something to exist. I wanted there to be a movement that I could be a part of, that everyone who was doing this work could be a part of, right, to share and to build our power collectively. And I knew that it couldn't be just a program, right, that it had to be something we owned together um, and moved together. And I think I also knew that in order for it to be a thing that created power and shared power, like we had to share power well in our processes. Um, we had to create safe, inclusive, diverse, equity-focused space in order for people to come and do that work together in a way that would make a difference. That kind of leads into, you know, my next question was going to be to dive in a little bit more about the role of the Backbone organization and really how the Backbone organization can help networks make change. Yeah, you know, the backbone uh, term, as you mentioned, comes from collective impact. And, um, you know, collective impact is in some ways just a way of putting into words and into form what tends to be successful in most collective movements. Um, so what they found is that 
successful collective movements that can drive towards changes tend to have you know some sort of backbone staffing because everyone else doing this work might be doing it as a volunteer or might be doing it as one of many parts of their role to engage in a network but they also have to see patients or they also have to write grant reports so it's on the side of their desk the idea is that it's in the middle of someone's desk the backbone agency um, has to do the role of like being the hub and bringing it together and the other components right of collective impact or that the people doing this work together all have a common agenda that they're moving towards some shared measurements to see how they're moving how well they're moving towards that goal you know activities that are coordinated enough to reinforce each other and then continuous communication to make that possible so in many ways like a backbone helps support all those roles they have a bird's eye view of different parts of the movement so that they can see what the movement is capable of. They're able to help scan the field and say, hmm, these are some of the gaps that we're seeing, or these are some of the strengths that we're seeing. How can we be supportive? The backbone, I think, plays a crucial role in helping create the theory of change, not alone, but having the skills to guide that process and to help the movement hone in on what it is that they're trying to change and how they're going to measure that change along the way and you know that the constant communication part is super important that the backbone often needs to serve as a central hub where the news of the system comes through and people can get linked up and get perspective and get resources and tools and find out who's doing what and you know talk to communities so the way that worked for the alaska resilience initiative is i you know designed the website so that there would be easy to find resources. People could contribute resources to be added to it. So there's kind of one toolbox that different communities who had their own networks were featured so that people could connect to other communities doing this kind of work so that they could see what it's like at a local level and what they need and support each other. That there were central documents that we had created, like I mentioned before, kind of the language, how we articulate these values right that was all stored in one place and then we had we use social media to really get out news constantly as well as email saying oh look there's this training happening there's this publication that you might find helpful there's this advocacy opportunity it sounds like as we're talking about the backbone some of the skills that are important to be an effective backbone are things like being able to like very strongly coordinate and support, provide logistical support, be that central hub of communication, um, and be, be the, the folks that can kind of help to build the connections and to be kind of the, 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 center, the center of the, 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 the wheel, so to speak, with the spokes mm -hmm. coming out of it. Um, is there anything else that you, can, that you would say would be helpful for folks that are uh, taking on the role of a backbone organization. Yeah. I think that's a good description of the structure, you know, and what it does. I think thinking about the skills that are needed um, at the level of like the staff and the board of the backbone agency, the backbone plays a really critical role in, um, like you said, administrative support. So you need staff to be able to do that in, in rooms or Zoom accounts or whatever is being used. Um, you also need skills at community organizing basically like understanding collective power and community dynamics and egos and psychological issues and how to deal with really hard group dynamics how to deal with power issues that come up um, within the work 
And I think the, the staff has to have those skills. They have to be able to step back and not, not just the staff, but the agency itself. If it's a one agency backbone and there are multiple ways of doing backbones, but if it is one agency backbone, I think finding that balance where you are establishing yourself as the agency that's supporting this work, but not leading out in front, not putting your face in front, not leading with ego, being able to be a player in the field who's really trusted and seen as a partner rather than as someone who's kind of, you know, taking credit for other people's work or, um, you know, trying to get out in front. That is very difficult to manage. And I think you have to have the people in the backbone who are willing to have those hard conversations and do the self-reflection and seek feedback from members and and really hold that space of being able to support and give birth to something that is bigger than itself that might have its own identity and then another piece right you just have to have people with evaluation skills strategic planning skills you know measurement research etc um to really know how to how to measure your success and communicate it you need people with communications and web and social media and communications infrastructure that's super important and social marketing skills policy obviously skills right how do you make beautiful things that convey your messages and grab people's attention and i think you have to believe in collective power you have to believe in the concept of we that people have to feel like they're a part of something my colleague desiree shepler who was the former director of rock matsu out in the Matanuska, Sisitna Valley in Alaska, she said, what's important about collective impact is that it's not someone else asking you to do your work differently. It's us asking ourselves to do our work differently. I wanted to just um, follow up on what Laura is saying around the difference between the technical skills and attributes of a backbone organization which are very important for a backbone to possess around systems and infrastructure and process and evaluation tools, but also the importance of the adaptive capacity that really, I don't know how much can be, of that can be taught outside of lived experience. And so when I think to Laura's perspective and what has shaped your perspective being a mother and you know within a family system you know the child of a survivor and then your work in indigenous communities and different kinds of health systems and organizing all of those experiences having shaped your worldview the way that you approach your work and therefore shaping the way that you approach your role as a leader and a catalyst in the backbone organization. And I think I would even venture to say that your work might not have had the kind of systemic impact that you described earlier, had it not had the leadership of someone with such a rich and diverse perspective and such a curiosity about people's trauma and also collective power and resilience. So I think that that's just a really important thing for our listeners to understand if they are pursuing the work of being a backbone organization, to know that it's not just about what kinds of systems can we build and how good is your evaluation team and how savvy is your marketing team. It's also about how are you creating a culture within that 
backbone that transfers to the network and that is really rooted in experience, perspective, and equity. You know, what I have been learning for the past 12 years or so from my Alaska Native friends and colleagues is that you have to lead as a, as a whole human being. Like you have to come and present yourself as a whole human being and tell people who you are. An Alaska Native introduction like starts with who your parents are and who your grandparents are and where you're from. And that's so critical, I think, to, to acknowledging like the wholeness of the people doing this work. Because part of a trauma-informed approach is that you know that people are working everywhere who've experienced trauma and that's affecting the work they do. And so, you ha- I mean, you have to know people, you have to acknowledge people and their histories. And part of that is leading with your own history. It's kind of like you were saying, it's moving from a culture perspective where it focuses on me or I or the individual to a perspective that focuses on us collectively. Mm-hmm. Moving from a culture of me to a culture of we. I think that's really important to highlight. One thing I wanted to make sure to, to kind of touch on a little bit is the role that the backbone and the network and how, how the backbone organization can support networks or how networks themselves need to be thinking about support during times of crisis and times of disruption, mm-hmm. um, such as we're going through right now with, like I said earlier, the pandemic and also with the, the heightened attention to violence against black and brown bodies and indigenous people. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, if I can, I think I'll organize my responses into sort of the structural, like structurally, how does a backbone support the network to adapt to these crises? And also as a, as a leader, right? How do you be a thought leader in supporting, like framing why these issues are relevant and what trauma has to do with these issues. And so on the latter, you know, I think anyone who, anyone who understands trauma, like should, you know, feel an ache in their heart thinking about Jacob Blake's children, right? And what kind of effect it, it would have on them to have witnessed the, the police shooting their father seven times right in front of them. And the trauma perspective makes us, you know, hurt feeling what kind of traumas have been experienced by the 545 migrant children whose parents can't be found, right? Or the thousands of migrant children who've been sexually abused by, by staff at the camps, understanding those lifelong effects. And so what one thing I think networks can do and that backbone agencies can support them to do is to elevate that trauma perspective on the issues of immigrant rights and the issues of violence against black and brown people in this country, right? And tie these things together. Part of, though, what we have to contend with is that, you know, while most people care about children, most people, you know, want to, like, hashtag save our children and care deeply about the children in their lives and want the best for their kids and their grandkids, not everyone in this country extends that care to children of all racial backgrounds and all citizenship statuses. And I want unity, right? I want us to be able to work together across differences. I want healing. I I do believe that ACEs is a framework that allows us to work in a bipartisan way and, you know, across differences. It's a really effective tool because ACEs are so universal. But I think we can't be naive in trying to do this work because I think we do have to remember 
that, you know, in the early and mid 1800s, like the same people who loved their own children were willing to use enslaved black children as alligator bait or sell them to other families. You know, the same people now who want to protect their own children from illness, like are supporting policies that deny medications to migrant children and overcrowded detention centers because dehumanizing groups of children means that you take some children out of your conception of all children or all lives. And so I think that as a movement, we want to unify, we want to bring people together, but we have to not be naive about it. We have to advocate for approaches that are for all children and appeal to all people and all potential allies, but we also have to address the systemic things that can make some groups of children, right, and youth and adults and families suffer more than others. And so I think as a backbone, you can help set the table for those conversations by having, like Catherine said, like your own internal culture that is safe and inclusive and and equitable. I also think you have to weave it in implicitly. I mean, that's very much like the the approach that we took in the Alaska Resilience Initiative. We did talk about it explicitly, but we also wove it in implicitly in terms of which types of photos we used and how we use those photos and those images. On a process level, I think we have to do the work in how we do the work. So we have to Uh, work to end systemic racism through having equitable processes, hiring diverse staff, offering stipends um, to people who we want to participate on our steering committees or our work groups who maybe aren't in the kind of salary job that allows them to participate. Um, We need to pay people for their work. I believe that we should be like paying for peer leaders, for promotoras or neighborhood block captains, as I think they're called in Philadelphia. You know, we should go to communities. We should have reciprocal and meaningful partnerships with agencies that are run by Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Meaningful partnerships with tribal governments. So a lot of it is in how we do the work and offering that safe trauma-informed space for people to grieve and people to be angry and people to process what's going on in the world right now. In terms of COVID, interestingly, my experience is that I left the position as the director of the Alaska Resilience Initiative in February of this year and began um, a position working on COVID for the state in March. So right when the pandemic was hitting Alaska, um, I was working on COVID at the state. And so I was trying to bring the trauma-informed child and family perspective right into the COVID work at the state. And the state has always been one of our partners, but trying to do it from the inside and continuing to be in conversations. So the Alaska Children's Trust was then hosting conversations with child advocates about how can we look out for kids and families during the COVID pandemic, right? How can we offer support? So I worked with the Office of, you know, the Child Protective Services on like a website for them and created tools about COVID for children and families, you know, just doing this bridging. And what the backbone agency, the Alaska Children's Trust, continued to do was hold the space for people to come together and share their ideas. And that's what the Southern Kenai Peninsula Resilience Coalition did, too, is they had frequent meetings and people came together and everyone was sort of shell-shocked and didn't know how to adjust. And so they created this, this safe space for people to talk about how to adjust to the new COVID landscape and the work they were already doing for kids, as well as these elevated risks that kids were experiencing. One of the ways we can, as a movement, support is to advocate that in our COVID response, we prioritize children and families. That we say, you know, ultimately, like people don't need to go to restaurants. We can pay restaurant workers to stay home, but they do need medically assisted treatment for opioid disorders, right? Or they, children do need um, special education support services, right? Or therapy. And so really 
as a movement, I think we should be advocating for prioritizing childcare and children and families and vulnerable families and people with trauma histories and their needs kind of first and foremost. One of the things that I've learned that's been really important uh, as, as we go into this and especially as we're working with community organizations and coalitions and collaboratives and networks is it's a time when we need to be very conscious of the grace that we're allowing each other because it is there's a lot of need there's a lot of stress there's a lot of anxiety and the work is never going to end and it's just compounding on top of all of the existing needs and we need to work with a sense of urgency but also be patient with ourselves it is interesting because now the whole world, because we're experiencing a collective trauma, the whole world is talking about self-care. The whole world is talking about trauma and mental health and coping. And so it does, in a way, give us an opportunity to engage without as much stigma. There's not as much stigma right now to, to say that you're struggling because everyone's struggling. That's a really good point. Funding is always a challenge and is always going to be a need for networks doing this kind of work. So for backbone organizations, I mean, it is really hard. This, I think this was the hardest part of my job was trying to sustain funding. But you know, demonstrating your value and earning trust early on so that partners really want you to be funded and will pass you know, grants or connections to funders your way, having something to show for the connections you've made, having some early wins if possible, for us, the trauma-informed government statute and the curriculum were the, the sort of wins that we could point to. In a very different model, the Southern Kenya Peninsula Resilience Coalition does it through just this 12 years of trust and relationship building. So they have a web of different fiscal sponsors based on where something makes the most sense to live. So they just have this leadership council that meets, and then the DV shelter will get this grant, and the reproductive health clinic will get this grant, and the hospital will get this one, and the early childhood organization will get this grant. And they work together on how to use those, but they actually don't have one fiscal sponsor. Their fiscal sponsorship is sort of based on, um, because they have so much trust, it's based on where things fit the best. You know, and then Rock Matsu had really good funding, I think, because they had a very committed, solid funding source from the beginning that provided for enough staffing and enough support for them to be successful, which they could then leverage to get more funding. In terms of funders, my main advice would be to fund <laughs> cross-sector networks. Uh, like to fund them long term, to fund them with enough staff and enough resources and enough time to be successful. You know, not just funding the quick, tangible outcome type projects, but funding this trust building and relationship building and and power sharing. As a funder, I would really be curious about the way that the Backbone Agency practices trauma informed and culturally responsive culture and, and, you know, and policy and practice within the organization and how they focus on equity, how they do power sharing, how they create safe environment, collaborative environments in the agency um, in order to fund them. And then in general, I think Voli with um, the nonprofit AF blog has a really good guidance for funders. So just whatever Voli says. Yeah. Nonprofit AF blog is uh, a really great resource for a lot of folks. Thanks for uh, pitching that out there. Before we wrap things up, Laura, is there anything else that you'd like to add about 
ATR networks or their backbone organizations that might be helpful for our listeners to hear? Sometimes I think it just helps to know, to know that you're not alone in having these issues. I found in doing this work that there were a lot of tensions or spectrums and a lot of people saying you're doing it wrong because you're um, not giving credit to the work that's already been done. You're, you're not giving enough credit to the work that's already been done on one side of the spectrum. And on the other side of the spectrum, you know, you need to innovate more. You need to go do new things that haven't been done yet, right? The old ways aren't going to serve us. And, and everyone falls somewhere on that spectrum and often thinks that people are wrong for falling on a different place on that spectrum. And so I think when you are able to like bring, maybe draw where we land on those places in the spectrum and why, for example, working in state government might make you structurally more inclined to one part of the spectrum versus if you're grassroots advocates, you know, you might be more inclined to the other side of the spectrum. Sometimes it, it helps to just articulate those things and say, this isn't because we're bad people, right? It's because this is hard work and here are some of the issues. Laura, definitely want to thank you very much for being part of this conversation. You've shared so much amazing information that I think will be very helpful for folks um, across the board uh, who are doing the work of uh, working around trauma and resilience. Catherine, I want to turn to you for a moment and ask uh, if there are any if there's anything else that's kind of coming up for you around the topics of power and privilege that, um, that are coming out of, of, of Laura's comments? What's coming up for me, there's a couple of things. Um, I, have a, I have a little piece of paper um, that is pinned to my wall. I've had it for several years. It was given to me by a campaign manager as I was leaving my community organizing career. And written in red, it says, power defines the rules. And what I'm thinking about is all of the ways that uh, Laura's work and the potential of backbone organizations has to define the rules and to shift the way that we think about things and talk about things and engage in the work publicly and privately. Um, you know, Laura said something that really stuck with me, you know, as we were talking about COVID and this question of what do people really need? You know, people don't need to eat out at restaurants, but restaurant workers need to be able to pay their rent and buy food and pay for their medicine. And so the ability for ACEs Trauma and Resilience Networks to even be able to shift that conversation about what people need is a way of redefining the rules of how we engage in the system that we exist in and potentially even creating new rules for the system that we want to exist in. Um, and I think backbone organizations, if they're informed by equity and centered in relationship and trust, really have a unique opportunity to define the rules. One of the things that kind of came through for me is, as you were just talking and as I was listening to Laura speak, is that I think we've, we're used to, and, and I guess even conditioned to think of power looking one specific way, right? Like we, we if you think of it, you think of it in looking one, one specific way and you, you might even think of it as, as having a specific color too. 
to, to not be so subtle about it. But I think all of that we've been talking about really makes the point clear that, that there is so much collective power in what we're doing. And especially when we can harness that into these networks that backbone, backbone organizations can support to really make that change happen in our communities. And that's, that's really the way to be responsive to community needs and to be responsive to what community wants to see happen. For more tools and inspiration by networks and for networks, visit mark.healthfederation.org. Funding for this podcast comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are our own and not necessarily those of the foundation.